It's good to see all you guys. It's good to see Billy over here in my back right hand over there. Uh, it's a friend of Dylan's, so I'm glad to see that he is actually social and that people like him. And uh, uh, Billy was your name, right? It wasn't? Or what was it? That's close enough. And so... <laughs> How much, how much did Dylan pay you to come to church with him this morning? No, you should have held out for more than that. I mean, I wouldn't be seen with him without $10, you know. So, it's good to see you guys. Did you get enough to eat already? Are you still recovering? You, are you, you have the turkey sweats? Are you living with regret right now? You know, it's like we, uh, we always make the joke at our house, the meal is not over when you're full, the meal's over when you hate yourself. That's when the meal's over. Uh, when you're so full that you can't possibly function as a human, you have eaten enough, all right? Now, uh, before I get started, I have been, I didn't even say anything this morning. I just came in, I was minding my own business, and somebody in this room picked a fight with me. All right, I was just here to preach the sermon. That's it. Now, the goal used to be Philippians 3. The goal is no longer Philippians 3. The goal is my intense hatred for Alabama football at this point. All right. And I have... Easy. All right. And uh, I, have just, I have made a decision. I've never really been into football too much until I got back here. And there was this, this emotional turmoil that I'm having to relive every Saturday. So... My new, my new promise to you is this, is that the first team that beats Alabama will be my team, all right? It doesn't matter if it's Notre Dame. It doesn't matter if it's New Mexico Southern State University. It doesn't matter to me. What, whatever the, I will, I, that will be my team from here on out. And you, I can promise you, hand on the Bible, you will never hear the end of it, all right? So... <laughs> So with that being said, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, <laughs> all right, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, <laughs> it was fun though, right, isn't the Thanksgiving weekend awesome? I enjoyed it, Lois and I were out of town over the weekend, and uh, we had a great time, and we were driving back, and we kept making the joke, the magic's over, it's done, we're going back, you know, we have to clock in Monday morning, and that's the way it feels sometimes, right? And, you know, it's, as I was thinking about that, getting ready for this morning, a lot of that feeling has to come with what we feel like our goals are in life. You know, when we, it, let's just be honest, life isn't always kind to you and I. Uh, the circumstances that we operate under aren't always the easiest. Uh, we look like we have it put together a lot of the times, and often we do not. Um, the reason being is because it's difficult to deal with just the, the day-to-day uh, realities of the stress of decisions that we've made, the stress of other decisions that people have made that affect us. Uh, we have decisions or just things that have happened to us, circumstances that are completely out of our control. And uh, so as a result of that, uh, our goals in life can tend to shift to some things that aren't bad, but necessarily aren't good either. They add a level of stress to our lives that God never intended. And I want to talk to you about what those are or what our real goal should be uh, out of the Bible in Philippians chapter 3. And rest assured that while you might have a lot of sub-goals in life, you've got to wake up and go to work tomorrow, and all God's people said, Ugh, right? <laughs> so you've got to wake up, you've got to go to work tomorrow. Uh, you're still going to be married, for, you know, you're still going to have kids. And you're, all those responsibilities are going to still be there, but yet those aren't necessarily your goals, you see, we may have a lot of responsibility, but we have one goal. 
And we're going to find out what that is in Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read quite a few verses this morning, so just hang in there with me. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Now, verse number 1, Paul is ending this letter. And he says, finally, my brethren. Now, you know Paul was a pastor when he says finally, and then he writes two more chapters. You know, it's kind of like when the pastor says, and in closing, you might as well just get ready for 15 more minutes, right? He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, the New King James says mutilation. Your translation may say circumcision. He's talking about those legalistic Jews there. He says, beware of these folks. So in verse number 3, he says this, For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. Now, if he says that in verse 3 about us, what does that imply about them in verse 2? That they aren't that way, right? And he says, just beware of these people, for we worship God in the spirit. It goes on to say, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and notice this, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, your Bible might say dung there, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And notice that's really what Paul's getting at here. He says, all this stuff, he says, my goal is to press on and take hold of that thing that Jesus has already taken hold for me. And he goes on and says in verse number 14, uh, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And notice this, in Christ Jesus. You know, the world tells you and I that we ought to have lots of different types of goals. Lots of different types of things that make our life worth something. Paul comes along and he says this, My one singular goal in Christ is, or in life, is Christ. You see... The purpose of your life is not a something. It's not an activity that you're going to accomplish and say, that's it, I've done it, I'm finished, I've done that thing, my life is full. No, the purpose of your life as a believer is not a something, it's a someone. And Paul's target was Jesus. It's not that Paul was saying, I'm going to make myself more like Christ. He was saying that in everything that he did, his sole focus on life was the person of life, Jesus Christ himself. So this morning, I want us to see that the singularly most important and most essential goal for the Christian is not something to achieve, but rather it is someone we know and receive from. So let's have a word of prayer this morning, shall we? Father in heaven, uh, we're thankful this morning that uh, it's, we're moving into the time, the Christmas season, uh, which we reflect on why it is you actually came. And as we gear up for that, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use the Word of God in these moments 
to show us what our goal needs to be. What are we really here for? And I pray that you would rearrange the priorities of our minds. May you align our emotions with what we know is true. Uh, may the Holy Spirit of God reveal Jesus in this moment. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, someone has said uh, that our greatest weakness is depending on what we think our greatest strengths are. And here that's really what Paul is getting at. He's getting at that we trust in a lot of things and we make a lot of things our goals in life that are not Jesus Christ. And we go about accomplishing those things the best way that we know how, don't we? I mean, and we do so with limited information. Uh, we do so with limited experience. I mean, just think back for those of you that were married. When you got married, and my anniversary is today, when you uh, trust Christ, when, or you trust Christ, when you enter into a Christian marriage, you just don't know what's going to happen, do you? You have no clue. Every major decision that you make, you can't make it with all the information that's out there. You can't do it. We think that we make the right decisions when, in essence, what God is doing is He's leading us by the very life of Christ that's inside you and I. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to put aside what we think our strengths are. I want you to take whatever you feel like is your greatest ability that enables you to navigate life and put it to the side and make Christ your goal rather than that strength being your goal. All right, the first thing I want you to consider is this. I want you to see the emptiness of self-confidence. Now, Paul was a man uh, that had his act together. When people looked at Paul, they thought that he had it figured out. Matter of fact, he gives us a long laundry list of all the right things that he had done. And he was trusting in all his correct decisions. And a lot of times we do that, don't we? We go to God and we say, God, I have done X, Y, and Z. Why isn't this a reality? You see, the problem is, is that Paul was living in the only other kind of righteousness that there is. There's God's righteousness, right? You know what the other kind of righteousness is? It's self-righteousness, right? That's all you got. We either have the righteousness that comes from Christ or the righteousness that we produce through our own behaviors. And Paul was behaving well. When people looked at Paul, they said, this guy's got it figured out. I mean, so much so that he said, when I was a Pharisee, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, which means, you know, like when you think of basketball players, if, now I want you to say the first name comes to your mind. In your mind, or in our generation, I guess we should say, who is the most well-known basketball player you can think of? Michael Jordan, right? He is, I'm sorry, who do, <laughs> what did you say, honey? <laughs> no, just move on, okay. And <laughs> she said, move it along. Larry Bird, right? But Michael Jordan is the basketball player of basketball players. When you think of basketball players, you think of Michael Jordan. I mean, he's even got his own overpriced shoes to prove it, right? And uh, so when you think of Paul, he was the Michael Jordan of Pharisees. I mean, he had it figured out. He could dunk from the proverbial uh, Moses free throw line, you know what I mean? Tongue out and everything, slamming the ball. He had it figured out. But yet Paul came to a place where he realized his righteousness was not gaining him what he felt like he needed. Now, back over in verse number 3, notice what he says there about the emptiness of self-improvement projects. Because he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. And he says, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, when we use the word self in this scenario, we could actually replace it with the word flesh too, flesh confidence. What in the, word is, what in the world is flesh? Well, I've defined it this way. It is a way to act or think 
It is a network of habits and strategies that we employ to make it through life. That could be manipulation. It could be just nose to the grindstone hard work. It could be a number of different things, but it's something that we are resting all of our confidence in, all of our trust, we could say, that this thing, this activity is going to get me through life and it is going to produce for me an environment in life that I enjoy. Now let me ask you this, how many times has that actually worked for you, really? It seems like the biggest blessings that we have in life, we didn't plan to get, did we? It's when we just stop and we allow God to enter in and bless us the way that He sees fit that we actually enjoy life more. When we tell ourselves that I'm going to make this work, that's when we become the most miserable. I can remember many different times in my life I told God, this is going to happen one way or the other, and it about killed me. I can remember, I may have told you this story, but uh, blessed are the people that hear it twice and still enjoy it, okay? I uh, was out back behind one of the places of employment that I had out in Utah, and I was cleaning up the parking lot. And I remember a few months beforehand, I had told a friend of mine that the church that I was pastoring was going to be this kind of church. And I made this phrase. I said, it's going to be like this and like this and like this if it kills me. That's exact words. That's what I said. And I remember a few months later, the Lord, I was out there sweeping up and doing my thing, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, you remember when you said that? Have you ever had those moments? They don't happen constantly, you know. And I, I was, you know, just this is going on in my head like this, you know. I said, sure, well, I remember that. He goes, good, because I want you to understand that if you do, it will kill you. What he wasn't like threatening me. I didn't feel threatened at all. I didn't feel like he was saying, try it and I'm going to stop you dead in your tracks. That's not what was going on. What God was telling me in that moment was this is that when I stomp my foot and I slam my fist down and I say, bless God, my life will be like this, what I'm actually saying is, is I have a lot of confidence in how I can make my life turn out. And you know what's always at the end of that road? Immense disappointment. Because there are things coming that we can't see. And there are circumstances that are going to fly at us that we cannot change. It doesn't matter how much we pray. That circumstance is not changing. It's just a reality of breathing air on a fall, in a fallen world. That's just the way that it is. And Paul says, listen, I have no more confidence in my flesh. He says, we're of the ones. He says, God has put us in a category where he's calling you and I to give up on our ability to force life to work. You see, in verse number four, let's run through his little resume. Paul even had a list. He said, look, man, I'm going to show you how good I was. He goes on and he tells us all this stuff in verse four. He goes, if anybody thinks they can have confidence in their ability and their strategies, the flesh, if anyone thinks that they can make it happen, I'm more. He said, so let's get in a contest real quick. This is what he's saying. Let's do a flesh contest. You make your list of things that are going to produce life for you and they're going to produce an outcome for you, and I'm going to make my list, and we'll see whose list is better, okay? And then he gives you his list. What does he say? He says, number one, I was born a Jew, and I was circumcised on the eighth day. You know what he was saying? Everything that God said to do in his law happened in my life. On the eighth day, my parents had me circumcised. They had me named on that day, just like the law said. He goes on, and he begins to say that, 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a very prestigious tribe. He knew his lineage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means this. There were no Gentiles that he could find in his line. Everybody that was in Paul's birthright, in his birth line, were all Hebrews, were all Jews, as it were. And he goes on and he talks about how he was concerning the law. He was a Pharisee, the strictest sect there was. Paul had it nailed. He, you know what? When Paul was 13 years old, you know what he could quote? Word for word, he could quote the entire book, your favorite book of the Bible, my favorite book of the Bible. You've read it a couple of times this week, the book of Leviticus. I know you love it, all right? You know, you're just waiting for the major motion picture of Leviticus to come out. You know what I mean? And you are just going to be so stoked to see somebody show you what a meal offering really looks like, you know? But Paul, when he was 13 years old, when he became a man, a Jewish man, he could quote the book of Leviticus, all right? This guy knew the law. He knew the strategy, so to speak. He says, when he got a little bit older, he says, concerning zeal, he says, I was so given over to this strategy for living life, I literally persecuted other people as a result of it. He said, I took my strategy and I forced it down the throat of other people. That's what that is. He said, I literally, when people wouldn't bend to me, I would go and get letters from the high priest and we'd throw them in prison. You see, Paul, Paul says, I had a lot, and he was good at it. He was so good at it that people were scared to death of him. When he finally became a believer, when he walked into that first church service there in Jerusalem, when he was born again on the road to Damascus there, and he walked into that room, nobody would believe that he was even a Christian at that point. They thought, this guy is trying to trick us because he wants to throw us in jail. The reason why they thought that was is because when Paul says, I was zealous, he wasn't playing around. He meant it. Paul didn't have to have the T-shirt. He had the notches on his belt of people that he had literally seen put to death, thrown in jail, and families broken up as a result of his zeal. And he says, as touching the righteousness of the law, he says, blameless. He said, nobody could pin anything on me. If another Jew followed me around, they'd say to themselves, good night, this guy has got Moses in his back pocket. He's got it all figured out. But when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said something interesting to Paul. He said, his name was Saul then. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the pricks? Now, what he means by that is this, is that the entire time these things were going on, the Spirit of God was convicting his heart of real righteousness that he knew he did not have. You see, now there's two ways we can use the flesh. We can utilize the flesh in order to gain righteousness for God to save us from our sin, or we can use the flesh in order to gain God's blessing. You see, God's blessing, get this, folks. I want you to remember this. Please remember it. When we have confidence in our, our flesh's ability, God's blessing is not for sale. All right? God doesn't throw his blessing out there like this, someone he just bought out a storage unit. He just opens the door and says, come on in. If you've got enough cash, you can get a blessing. That's not the way things work. What Paul was pointing out to us is this, is I did everything I could by the righteousness of the law I even forced it down other people's throats. But at the end of the day, he was walking down a road with his heart being stirred within him and convicted and pricked by the Holy Spirit of God because he knew he wasn't living by the righteousness that only comes from God himself.
You see, there's an emptiness in self-confidence. There's an emptiness in the ability to live after, or the attempts to live after the flesh. At one time, Paul thought his flesh improved his standing with God, when in fact it was proof that he was not in right standing with God. The more you and I try to operate by the law, the more we're going to see the flaws that we have the more we're going to try to gain our own righteousness. The second thing I want you to see here is this, is the experience of Savior consciousness. You see, Paul came to a point to where he came into contact with Jesus and the idea of what righteousness was and the idea of what his goal was in life completely changed then. Because beforehand, Paul was very conscious and very aware of two things, the law and sin. Has his whole life wrapped around those two things. What rule do I have to keep to not sin? That was his whole life. But when he came into contact with Jesus Christ, the one that had already kept all the rules for him, the goal of righteousness was completely different then. Because at that point, he was aware of who Jesus Christ really was. Now, down here, if you'll look with me in verse number 7, and we're going to try to hurry through these things because I don't want to be here all day. I'm sure you're still in recovering from turkey coma. I get that, okay? In verse 7, he says this, but what things were gained to me, and note that he's going to use this word three times, I have counted, now keep that word in mind, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things for loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and here it is again, and count them as rubbish. Now here's what Paul is saying. He's saying all that stuff that I used to navigate my way through life, at the end of the day, when I came into contact with who Jesus is, I realized that it was dung. Now, I don't know about you, but few people collect that as a collector's item. I remember when I was growing up in uh, St. Elmo, Alabama, my people. And uh, <laughs> when I was growing up out in St. Elmo, my, uh, we had probably about 40 acres or so, and we had some cows, probably about 30 or 40 cows. I have no clue what kind they were. They were red, all right? And uh, my dad drove an 18-wheeler at the time. So we had this little gate system in the back. My dad would pull his truck in, turn it around, pull back through this other gate, and back up. Well, the problem was this. You had to open the gate. When you opened the gate, it closed the gate off to where the cows were at. And then when he backed his truck in, you, opened, you closed the gate again, and then all the cows could move about the field. Well, the problem was this, is if you know anything about cows, they produce something. And it is everywhere, all right? And my dad did not like driving his 18-wheeler through these things laying all over the ground. So one of my jobs were that every time I got in trouble after he whipped me, amen, after he whipped me, he would make me go out there with a flathead shovel and scoop up cow pies, put it, the fresh ones were the best, you know what I mean, a good fresh cow pie thrown in the wheelbarrow, and I had to take it out behind this big pile of scaffolding and dump it out just where he backed his truck in so he wouldn't have to run over the cow pies, all right? Now listen, that pile that I had back behind uh, that scaffolding in the back of that, that field, let me tell you something, it was, a big, it was big because I got in trouble all the time, right? But you know what? I never thought to myself, I never woke up in the morning and thought to myself, I'm going to go check on just see how much I've got collected. You know what I mean? I wasn't keeping like a running tally of how, the, how, how tall it was or wide it was or anything like that. You know why? Because you don't count those things worth that. And you see, that's what Paul was saying here. He heaped everything up that he had that he felt like was his goal in life he pointed at it and he goes, I count that stuff the same value 
as something you would find in a quote-unquote religious porta potty I want nothing to do with it anymore. It's worthless to me. So what does he tell us? He says, I've counted all these things for loss. Now, here's the thing we need to remember. When Paul counted these things for lost, when he abandoned all this stuff, he was exchanging it for something better. Because what he tells us here is he, he, he counted it all lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ his Lord. He was saying, not only do I have a new value system in my life, who is Jesus, also have a different goal in life, who is Jesus. Everything about what I found valuable in my strategies, I exchanged for the strategy of Jesus Christ himself. Here's an interesting, uh, let's see if i got the verse up here. Matthew 13, I read this a while back, and the Lord kind of just turned the light switch on a little bit. Have you ever read any of those parables that Jesus gave? And let's be honest, you close your Bible and you're like, not real sure what went down right there. You know what I mean? Just kind of right over the head. Well, this one was somewhat like that for me for a while. Notice what it says. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, this is a good illustration of what Paul's talking about here. We got two guys that come across something extremely valuable. One finds it in a field. The other person is actually looking for it, and he comes across it. Now, there's something interesting that both of these guys do to obtain what they want. Did you catch what it was? They sold everything that they had. Now, here's the thing. We could look at that, and we'd say to ourselves, wow, they lost everything to get that one thing. Really, you know what they did? They, got, they exchanged what they had for something that was more valuable. They got rid of things that they knew in that moment that they could live without to have the one thing that they know they could not live without. You see, what the Lord showed me in those portions of Scripture is that that treasure in the field, that's Jesus. That pearl of great price, that's Jesus. And see, here's the truth of the matter. Christianity is not you selling everything you have at a loss. It is you exchanging everything you have for a gain. So when we come into contact with Jesus Christ, and we begin, we trust Jesus, and really, let's be honest, when we're born again, we really don't know all the ins and outs of what that means, do we? We really don't know. We can go for years and really not know. But sometimes in our Christian experience, we have this one singular focus in life, and God comes to us, and He's trying to rearrange our priority and our goal. And we feel like that we are literally losing everything to shoot at this other target, don't we? Now, I want you to remember this, and I guess this is the, the, the central theme of the entire message, is that when you give up that thing or those things as your goal, it doesn't make them bad. What it does is it doesn't make them as valuable as the main goal. Here, and the irony of it is this. A lot of, just think of the good stuff we value. Our, our, our wives, for you ladies, your husbands, your kids, uh, your grandkids, uh, you know, extended family members, your church family, all those things. All those things that we place a value on are good, aren't they? There's nothing wrong with that. But what God is saying is this, is listen, I've got something that is of greater value than anything else that you could possibly name. And this thing is actually a someone, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. We give up nothing in life 
That's something we really, it's hard for me to get. Because I can tell you for a long time, I felt like that I lost a lot of stuff and not really gained anything from it. But when the fact of the matter is, is I never lost anything because I had the one thing that would never leave. You see, we give up nothing. We simply exchange what we have for something greater. And as Christians, we're never really sacrificing. What we're doing is we're exchanging. That's what we're doing. Third thing is this. Now we're going to jump down and we're going to be finished. Look at verse number, jump on down to verse number 12. This is an exercise of spiritual maturity when it comes to the goal. Paul says, listen, and this is the Buddy Revised Standard Version of verse number 12. He says, I really don't have this thing figured out. All right, I'm not, he's basically saying this, I'm not killing it like I thought I was killing it beforehand. He says, not that I obtained, I have already obtained, or if I'm already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He's saying this, I want my goal to be the very goal that Jesus has for me. So here's the point. And this is, this is very important for younger people too. A lot of the times we ask ourselves, what does God want for my life? What does he want to do with my life? What does he want to do through with my life? All the, we ask all these questions. With younger people like, my, my life is completely pointless. And they try all these things to figure out what their goal of life is. And here's the thing that we miss. What we miss is, is that Jesus Christ has already laid hold of life for you. So in order to know what life is about, your goal has to be Christ. Now, think about it. Go back to the garden even. You can go back to the garden with just about any truth you run into in the New Testament, can't you? You go back to the garden. What do you think Adam's life was like before the fall? Do you think he woke up every morning and said, Oh, I hope God shows up because I don't know what to do today. Do you think that's what his life was like? Do you, you think that he woke up and said, I'm not sure, should I, should I trim the hedges or should I plow the field? I don't know, I wish he would just come tell me. No, you know what Adam's life was like? He woke up every day trusting that God was his goal and he just simply lived his life. We get so hung up on having to figure things out for ourselves that we are not focused on the one that has already obtained for us. You see, the mature Christian is not the believer that knows what to do in every scenario. The mature Christian is the one that knows who to trust in every scenario. And verse number 13, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What God has planned for you in this life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse number 15, Therefore let us... I like how Paul doesn't say you. You need to do this. He says, no, we all need to do this. He said, let us, as many or as mature, have this mind. You see, we are very confused about what maturity means when it comes to the goal of the Christian life. We think maturity in the Christian life is you going to church three times a week, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. We think that it is these habitual activities that believers get involved with. But the fact of the matter is this, is maturity comes with having a mindset that says, Christ is my goal. I'm going to tell you, folks, that, that process of moving our minds into that mature way of thinking Uh, can seem like it's impossible. And be honest with you, it's quite threatening 
because it calls us out of a safety zone that we're used to. It calls us away from the areas in which we've already tried to strategize our way through life. And it says, give those things up and put your sole focus on who Jesus Christ is. Life is defined by Christ. Life does not define Him. You see, when Paul says, I press towards the goal of the, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, he's saying it's not fleshly resource, it's not worldly success, it's not avoiding responsibility, it's not gaining stuff, and it's not having a good reputation. It is in Christ. I didn't put this verse on the screen, but I'd like to read it to you. It's 2 Corinthians 12.10. Because of this mindset of dependence that Paul is talking about, he mentions it again in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm what? I'm strong. You see, our goal in life is not to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. You see, we're really, we kind of condition ourselves to become so independent that we don't trust anyone or anything or anybody, do we? You see, the goal of the Christian life is for us to become less independent. I remember Ben saying it a long time ago uh, when we were still involved in independent Baptist circles. He, ben said, it, I listened to a sermon that you preached, he said, we're, not into, we are, we're too independent Baptists, we should be dependent Baptists. And that's the same goes true for all believers. We're too independent. We feel like that we can make life's goals on our own. And not only do we not make Christ the goal, we keep all of Christ's people at an arm's length from us. And the result is, is that we're not focused on Him. We find failure as the norm rather than spiritual success as the norm. So I want to ask you this question. Who or what is your goal in life? What's your goal? And I'm, let's put it this way. My number one goal in life is, what was your answer? No, you don't have to tell me. Just think about it in your head. My number one goal in life is blank. Now, I guarantee you there was nobody in here that said, my number one goal in life is to rob 17 banks. I guarantee you nobody said that. Well, oh, see, okay, you see, it was 18, exactly. <laughs> Should have known my number was off for some people. <laughs> Should have went with an even number. Most of us in our minds did not put anything in that blank that was bad. You know what I'm saying? But here's the question, and here's my, here's my challenge to you. Are you willing to say, God, I will allow you to have that goal and exchange it for you, you as my goal? That's kind of, it. you know what you say, like, well, that's, that's pretty theoretical. Anybody could do that. Really? Could just, well, does just anybody do that? Can just any Christian say, I'll take my hands off what I feel like my life is all about and take whatever you have for me wrapped up in yourself in exchange? It's not so easy, is it? Because we have put a lot of time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears in that goal. We've given up a lot for that goal, haven't we? We have been through so many arguments with our spouse for that goal. We have rearranged money in a bank account for that goal. We have taken our kids and put them in situations for that goal. And so when God comes to it and He challenges that thing and says, Listen, what you have there is not bad, but it's not me. I want to be that goal. We, we kick a little bit, don't we? 
and we say, that's okay, I'll make you a close number two, all right? We'll, we'll just do a tie. How does that sound, you know? We'll just go into sudden death overtime and see which one works out the best, right? My number one goal in life is what? Are you willing to release that and exchange it for Jesus Christ's goal for your life? To your holy place Who is like you? Majestic in holiness Awesome